Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. Merry Christmas. Um, special greetings to those joining us at the O1, Highland Park, Crossroads campuses. Uh, congratulations on making it here, right? Braving the cold weather. There are many south of the Mason-Dixon line who think you're courageous and bold and heroic because you went out and it was going to be below zero uh, they can't believe it. You know, there's rumors that there might be some snowflakes next week. They've canceled school for the rest of the year. Of course, it's worth noting that all those living in the UP, North Dakota, all of Canada are playing hockey without their shirts on today. They think, they think it's all just complete Tommy rot that anyone would be worried about the temperatures. So, and no doubt at the Bears game, uh, Bears-Packers game today, there will be fans in the stands with no shirts on, you know, yelling and screaming. So... Um, glad that you're here. Um, sorry that um, uh, it's such a hardship to get out in the cold. Anyway, it's a Christmas miracle is a line that uh, sort of made it into our, our parlance uh, recently coming out of somewhere, coming out of It's a Wonderful Life or whatever, depending upon your theory. If you hear it today, if somebody uses it, it's probably because they found a good parking spot at the mall or... Uh, reflecting on the fact that uh, Aunt Tilly and Uncle Dwight didn't get in a fight again this year at Christmas. Uh, it's a Christmas miracle that these things happen. We want to think about this in a little bit different context today. We have been exploring and unpacking this Advent the idea that, that Jesus is the light that breaks into the darkness. And we've been doing this out of John 1. And we come today to a very important verse, one of the big ones, one of the real monumental ones, John 1, 14, in which we read uh, that the Word, which of course refers to Jesus, the Logos, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the the, the, the word here that gets everybody's attention is this the, the word for dwelling. So God is dwelling among us. There are uh, lots of efforts to translate this, different versions. Um, God became a person and tabernacled among us. God came down and lived among us. The word became flesh and took up residence among us. In his, uh, his paraphrase, Eugene Peterson translate, translates John 1.14 and says... Uh, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So what they're all trying to explain is the idea of the incarnation. The idea that, that unlike you and me, Christ's life didn't begin with his conception or birth. Jesus is eternal. So there, there was never a moment that God the Son did not exist. He was not created, right? He, he, was, he emanates out of God the Father. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God and three people. There's, they have always and forever existed in the perfect fellowship of themselves. But at a certain moment in time, in the fullness of time, when God's plan was finally ready, then God the Son takes on human form. While remaining fully God, he becomes fully man. And from that point and forevermore, 
Jesus is now one person with two natures. So God the Father, the triune God, is one God with three persons. Jesus becomes one person with two natures. Not half God, half man. Not God who becomes a man. Not a man who acts like God. Not a God who then then becomes man and ceases to be God and then becomes God again. But Jesus always and from from the time of the incarnation is now one person with two natures. He is God and he is man. And this is a big deal. It changes everything. Now, for the record, we can't understand it. It is what theologians refer to as a mystery, which has nothing to do with Agatha Christie. It, it is, it's something beyond our ability to comprehend. Don't worry about this. It only makes sense that the eternal, omniscient, all-powerful uh, God, the creator of, of two trillion galaxies, might be a little bit beyond our comprehension. Right? The ancients used to say uh, about this finitum non capex infinity. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. So uh, truth does not depend upon our ability to grasp it. Right? There are things we cannot understand. Doesn't mean they're not true. I, I, I can parrot answers about how airplanes fly. I can talk about the design of the wing and, and thrust and lift and all that stuff, but I don't really understand it. I can, I can explain to you how computers work with the whole binary code and how my iPhone works by bouncing these off satellites. I couldn't fix an iPhone. If it doesn't go on, I'm done, right? It's just, I gotta take it to somebody else. I don't understand a lot of things. We don't understand a lot of things. We do not understand cannot comprehend perfectly the the dual nature of Christ, what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union. But it's important for us to press it as far as we can, right? Just because we can't fully comprehend it doesn't mean we shouldn't try and unpack it. And so we look and, and meditate on and think about John 1.14. And, 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 and among the things that it immediately changes is it, it dismisses this idea of the sacred and the secular that is so prevalent in our, our thinking today. Some things are holy and spiritual and important, like the Bible and prayer, Sunday mornings. Other things are, are, are mundane, like sleep and food and, and, and Tuesday afternoons, right? That, that these, things, these things are secular and don't matter as much to God. No, that is Plato. That's not Jesus, right? Everything everywhere matters to God. Everything about you matters to God. Every moment matters to God. So this sacred-secular divide is just not part of what Scripture teaches. Additionally, the fact that God became a man not only means that, you know, matter matters, it means that he understands us, He's not a distant God, right? He knows what it's like to be weak and frail and to face temptation. The writer of Hebrews says this, uh, we do not have a high priest who's unable to relate to us. We have a high priest who's like us in every way except sin, right? He knows what it's like to be human. He came down and lived among us. Dorothy Sayers, the British uh, essayist and playwright, friend of C.S. Lewis's, 
said, look, for whatever reason, it made sense to God to allow us to fall. What we know is that at least he took his own medicine. And he shows up and he lives among us. He knows what it's like to be us. So there's a lot that flows out of the incarnation and and it's worth us looking at if if for no other reason. Once we get it, a whole lot of other things fall into place, right? Once we understand that Jesus was fully God and fully man, then the fact that he does miracles the fact that he can calm a storm, the fact that he can multiply food, the fact that he can walk on water, the fact that he's brilliant and, and can confound all the, the wise people of his age with, with piercing little insights that, that they can't see until he says it. All of that sort of is like, <laughs> right, okay, he's God. So what was I expecting? Uh, Sherry, my wife, coaches a girls' eighth grade basketball team. And uh, let's just imagine that, uh, that she was able to sign up uh, one of the players from the Bulls. Okay. It's unlikely, right? I mean, they're not, they, they, they want a lot of money to play, and they're not eighth-grade girls, and, uh, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some challenges. They got, they got a basketball team they're playing for. But let's just imagine that she did. Right, if she could recruit some of the Chicago Bulls, then would it surprise you that they won all their games? <laughs> No. You go, well, of course they win all their games, right? They're, they're, they're professional basketball players. The, the, the incarnation sort of explains a whole lot about Jesus. Well, of course he can do all those things because he is the eternal God, the creator of heaven and earth. <laughs> and so, of course, he can do these miracles. So the incarnation is a big, important concept. It's the one that we celebrate at uh, at Christmas, God became a man. And it, and it emerges out of John 1.14. It also, it, it emerges out of any careful reading of any of the Gospels, right? We, if we didn't have John 1.14, we'd still get it because the, the Gospels essentially make two points. Jesus is God and Jesus was a man. So as we read through the Gospels, we see Jesus claiming the names of God and the attributes of God and the titles of God. And we see Jesus acting like God. He forgives sins. He accepts worship. We see all the people around him eventually come to the conclusion that he's God. And, and his enemies want to put him to death because he's claiming to be God. So you got that idea. You've also got this idea that he's like a real person. For all the stars in the sky and the wise men coming and the, and the things that are special about Christ's birth... It's sort of a, a, a young woman having a child, right? It's like a normal birth. And as we read through the Gospels, we see that he gets tired and he gets hungry and he's got he's to sleep. And we see that, that, uh, that if you beat him and you whip him and you nail him to a tree, he dies, just like a real person. And so we have these two ideas that are developed in the Gospels. And we can't fully reconcile how one person could have two natures, be fully God and fully man. But that's the claim, and it grows out of John 1.14. So uh, a few weeks back, we, we started looking at John 1. Again, we saw that it, it opens by saying Jesus is eternal. Then it says that Jesus is is God, 
the, the logos, and then, then he's, the, he's the logic, he's the purpose, he's the one that provides meaning. And then, uh, then now, as we get to verse 14, it says he's the God-man, right? Not half God, half man. Not God some of the time, man some of the time. Not a God who, who looks like a man, not a man who acts like God, but fully God and fully man. Uh, this, this will also grow out of Philippians chapter 2, where we, we believe that Paul takes one of the oldest hymns of, of all time. So Paul's writing in the, in the late 50s or the early 60s. So he takes a hymn that is, that is common in the early church, and he just inserts it in his letter to the Philippians. And it says that Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be clutched, but he emptied himself. And he becomes a man, and then he becomes a slave, and he, and he goes down to his death. So this, this also uh, talks about the incarnation and the mystery of the incarnation. And so what I want to do is I, I want to try and put some boundaries on this um, over the last 2,000 years about every way to get it wrong, talking about the incarnation, has been suggested. And so I want to put some boundaries around it and say, don't make these mistakes. And then we marvel <laughs> at the miracle of the incarnation. And there's another miracle related to it that I'm going to talk about at the end. So we're going to marvel at that. And then we're going to sing uh, the, the great hymn from Charles Wesley, uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which has this great stanza that says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Right? So it's a, it's a, it's a song written imagining that we're looking at Jesus being born. So God is veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Okay, so incarnate, incarnate the word carnos is Latin for, for flesh. Carnivores are flesh eaters, meat eaters. So hail the incarnate, God become man, deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. So we're headed to that, but, uh, but what I want to do is put some, some guardrails on. And my contention would be, if you read church history, and don't imagine that you do, most people don't read any history, uh, but if you read church history, you would see that there are about eight ways to get Jesus wrong. Historically, there's eight ways to mess up especially the, the, the hypostatic union, the, the dual nature of Christ. And so you want to be sure you don't fall into one of these eight. The first one is unbelief. Okay, so the first people to get Jesus wrong are those who believe that he's a man but don't believe he's a God. So when he claims to be God, they put him to death. The second mistake that was made was in one sense just the opposite. There, there was a group called the Docetists. The Greek word doceo means to seem. And they said that Jesus was God, but it just seemed like he was a man. He really wasn't. He was a sort of a ghost. He was some sort of phantom, right? So again, the Greeks, this is Plato again, they don't like the physical world. They think it's inferior. So the Greeks, and John is writing to the Greeks, the Greeks are, are trying to say, well, God could not really be a man. So it just looked like he was a man. And, and John will write three letters. In addition to the Gospel of John, he'll write three letters. And in the first 
letter he writes, he opens going right after the docetists. This was a very early problem. And he says, I'm writing about things that I have heard with my own ears, seen with my own eyes, and touched. (laughs) Jesus is real. And if you say that he was a ghost, that he wasn't a real man, you you got this all wrong. So first mistake is to say that he's uh, a man and not God. Second mistake was to say that he was God but not a man. The third mistake were those that said he was born a man and only later became God at his baptism. And then the fourth view were the modalists, also called the Sibelians, who said that he was God the Father, and then he stopped being God the Father, and he became God the Son, and then he stopped being God the Son, and he became God the Spirit. Okay? So then we move on, and we have the Arians, the Nestorians, the Monophytes, and others, which I'm actually not going to tell you about. If you're interested... (laughs) Go to the notes. Uh, as always, the ser- my, my sermons are online, and you can you can you can download it. You can watch the video. I don't know why you'd want to, but you could. You could watch the video. You can listen to the podcast. You can read the manuscript that has, in this case, seven or eight additional pages explaining all these things. I would love to force you to understand the difference between uh, the Nestorians and and the, the Monophytes. But the reality is, uh, you probably won't. I'd love, to, I'd love to make you learn it and tell you there's going to be a quiz and that you've got you to understand all this stuff. The fact of the matter is, uh, look, some people learn this stuff. My observation is there are different mistakes being made today, and these are not the ones. My observation is that there are four things people are doing wrong with Jesus today. The first one is sort of the first one I started with. It's some form of unbelief. And what I hear today are some people who say, well, I don't believe that Jesus was God. As a matter of fact, I don't even believe he existed. Right? That he was, it's folklore and legend to say that there was a person named Jesus. Or some people who would say that uh, Jesus existed, but he doesn't. He never claimed to be God. So I just want you to know you never want to fall in that camp. Because nobody who's thinking falls into that camp, right? Nobody who's reading falls into the camp. There's no reputable historian that would ever suggest that, that we don't think Jesus existed, right? They may not believe that he's God, but they will say there was this man, right? This is, we, we can get this not just from the New Testament. We get this from, from non-Christian historians. And they would say there's clearly a man, some sort of Jewish prophet, he seems to be able to be doing magic. He teaches, draws a crowd. He, he claims to be God. This gets him sideways with the Jewish religious authorities who will have him put to death. Uh, he'll actually not be stoned for blasphemy because the Jews weren't in charge. The Romans will crucify him. And his followers will believe that he rises from the dead, and it's from that point that the Christian faith starts and spreads around the globe. Now, they may not believe that he actually rose from the dead. They may not believe that he was God. But anybody that's reading, anybody that's thinking will say, clearly this person existed, and clearly he claims to be God. So the unbelief camp, there's people out there, but it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a very viable option. The second thing I see today is actually the fifth historical problem. 
And it has a church history term. It's called Arianism. Arius was a 5th century popular teacher who, who said Jesus was incredible. Jesus was, was God-like. Jesus was the greatest person who ever lived. Jesus was the greatest teacher ever. And, and sometimes you read Arius and you think that he's saying Jesus was God with a small g. But, but what the Arians ultimately are saying is that Jesus was not equal to the Father. He was not fully God. At best, he's, he's the vice president of God. But, but at worst, he's just a great person, the greatest one who ever lived. But Arians will fall into that camp of saying somehow Jesus is less than who he claimed to be. So uh, we hear this today with people who say, I love, I think Jesus was a great moral reformer. He was a great teacher. He was wise. He was one of the greatest prophets who ever lived. Da, 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 da. Jesus is all of this, but not God. So when I hear that, I always want to argue, um, look, for the record, he, he is clear that that's not an option, right? He is so clear that that is not an option he's leaving open for you. So uh, religious leaders say things like, that's the path, that's the way, do these things, and you will be enlightened, you will move forward, you will advance after you die. Jesus doesn't say, that's the way. Jesus says, I am the way. <laughs> I am the truth. I am the life, right? Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I'm the one. I am God, right? So Jesus is clear in saying, this is not about enlightenment. This is not about great teaching. This is not about simply following my example. This is about me. So Jesus does not leave open the option to say he's a great person, because as Lewis would famously say, when you claim to be God, that means either you are God or you're crazy or you're a liar, right? You think you're God when you're not, which means you're significantly disturbed. If I think I'm a 55-year-old great golfer, right, I'm off, but I'm not necessarily insane. If I think I'm the creator of everything everywhere and, and, and that I'm the ultimate judge of all time, if I think that and I'm not, then I'm seriously deluded. Or I know it's not true. I'm claiming it's true. I know it's not true. I'm a liar. So Jesus does not leave open the option of saying he's great, but not God. The third thing I see people doing with Jesus is saying that he's God, but then misunderstanding the heart of his message. They think that he is God, but that his purpose was simply to be an example. So let, let's just be clear on the, the gospel. The, the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus, which we see in Christ's teaching, we see in Paul's teaching, we see spread throughout the church, the message is not, I need to be a good person. I need to try hard to do the right thing. I need to follow Christ's example, right? It's not that. It's, I'm a broken person, and I can't follow Christ's example. I can't get it done. Okay, come on, we've, we've tried, right? You've tried, you've tried to be good. You've tried to be as good as you can. But it doesn't last for very long when the standard is holiness. 
And then Jesus comes along with the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, by the way, I'm not, you heard it said in the law, you shouldn't kill anybody. I'm saying if you get mad at somebody, you're, you're guilty of murder. You've heard it said, shouldn't commit adultery. I say, if you look at a woman with lust, you're, you're guilty. Right? Jesus comes along and explains God's standards, and you just go, well, then it's hopeless. It's hopeless. I can't do this. Right? Christianity is not this I do, it's this he did. So the, the, the gospel is that we are in worse shape than we dare imagine, but that God's love and grace is greater than we can possibly comprehend. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, this does not mean that we don't follow Christ's example. right? We want to follow Christ's example, but we follow it out of thanks. We follow it out of a sense that we've been forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. So we want to be as much like Jesus as we can be. We just recognize he's God, and and he saves. Right? He's not. He didn't come as an example or a reformer. He came as a savior. God became man in order to do what we cannot perfectly fulfill the law. And because he was a man, fully man, he was our perfect representative in death. And he takes upon us, takes upon himself, the punishment for our sins. And because he is God, his death is of infinite value. And so he can die for your sins and mine. So what I see some people doing is they dismiss Jesus and they say, ah, he didn't exist or he didn't even claim to be God. Some people say he was a really, really, really great person, but not God. Others say he's God and then say, so therefore I've got to be like him. They misunderstand the gospel. And the fourth thing that I see some people doing is simply uh, sort of looking at all this and not acting, not, not responding, right? Putting it off. I, I, you know, there's more Netflix to watch or I'm going to, you know, I got Twitter feeds to read or I don't know, I don't know what it is, but sort of not understanding the kind of, of, of uh, urgency that, that is communicated by the gospel of understanding that there is an offer that has been made by God to us. So I said that there were two Christmas miracles that come out of John 1. Uh, The first is the incarnation. It's a mystery. It's a miracle. Uh, Somehow, in one person, Jesus, we have God and man. Fully God, fully man, in one person. The second miracle uh, that I would suggest comes out of John 1 is just the fact that he did it, right? That, that he accepted this assignment, right? Think about it. We live in a world where people want to climb, right? Where, where, where men want to become gods. And what we're being told is that God became a man. And that he does it knowing that it's going to cost him his life, that he's going to be humiliated, that he's going to suffer. Right? That's, that's what the assignment was. But, but the miracle is he did it. He did it for you. He did it for me. He came after us to rescue us. A couple months ago, I went to see a movie um, about Bernie Weber, 
who was a Coast Guard, uh, relatively uh, recent recruit in the Coast Guard. And uh, he goes out, he's in Chatham, Massachusetts, and there's a big storm. And he goes out after uh, a ship, the Pendleton, that in, uh, on February 18th, 1952, had, had split in half in a big storm. And he gets the assignment that he's supposed to take this rescue boat, this small boat out, and to go out to try and rescue these people. So this is 1952. They don't have, they don't have the kind of, uh, of radar. They don't have the kind of technology that we have. And they, they've been unsuccessful even in getting this size boat over the breakers without it turning over. And it's freezing out. And uh, this, is a, this is a suicide mission. Right? That's what it is. But somebody has to go. And the men who are on the, 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 the stern side of this ship, the, 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 the bow has sunk already, but there's 30 men in the stern. They have no sense that anyone's coming to get them, right? Nobody's going to come and get us. <laughs> you can't go out in this. And yet, Bernie Weber and two of his uh, Coast Guard colleagues go out on this rescue mission. And it's a, it's a great movie, and, and it's a true story, and they're successful in, in uh, sort of against all odds. They're successful in finding this ship. They're successful in rescuing these people. And, and as I was watching that, I thought, so, so there's a sense in which we're on the stern half of this sinking ship in a storm, right? And there's no sense someone's going to come rescue us. It's a suicide mission. And yet, the one who comes to rescue us is God himself. Right? So, in the fullness of time, he steps into the role. He sets aside somehow, he veils, he gives up, he puts some of his attributes. It's hard to know how this works. And if you talk about it wrong, you, you commit the canonic heresy, which I don't want to do. But somehow, while remaining fully God, he sets some of the divine attributes uh, in a blind trust, and he becomes one of us in order to understand what it's like to be us and in order to fulfill the mission. So incarnation of God is what sets this all in motion, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas, that the Logos be made his dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to uh, we're going to sing this great uh, hymn that celebrates that that uh, Jesus is veiled in flesh, but he is the Godhead, and he is uh, we're hailing the incarnate deity. So let me pray, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love and your plan, and that you would send your Son on this mission. It's it's shocking for mothers or fathers to think about uh, what this statement really means, that you are going to send your son uh, on this assignment, which will cause him great harm and pain and death. It's, it's, it's unthinkable that we would do that, and yet you did that for us. Lord Jesus, um, I pray that we could uh, more fully understand and appreciate who you are and what you did. And I pray especially for those who do not, have not fully understood the claims that you made and the things that you've done. 
And I just want to say to those of you who are here who might have found yourself in one of those other camps, not believing or uh, believing but misunderstanding the mission or just misunderstanding the gospel, that, uh, that you would lean into Jesus and that you would say, okay, Lord Jesus, the God-man, I need you. I need to be rescued. I realize I cannot do what you did. And I need a Savior, not just an example. I need a Savior to, to cleanse me of my sin and to reconcile me with God. I would encourage you, just lean in to Jesus. Invite him to be your Savior and Lord. Spirit of God, we pray that you would guide and direct us, convict us, encourage us, help us to more fully understand and marvel at Jesus. Uh, the Godhead, veiled in flesh. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.